0: Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. William Cam has a 10pm curfew, and is not allowed to spend time with girls under the age of 17. He is prevented from entering the Shoalhaven district of New South Wales, and his movements and communications are monitored. These are conditions of his release after serving nine years in jail for crimes he committed against two teenage girls, yet his followers still believe that he is the next true Pope, and that the Virgin Mary speaks to him on the 13th day of every month. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we start, a content warning. This episode will deal with issues that some people may find disturbing, including sexual assault of minors and manipulative behaviours. There's also a small amount of coarse language. Please consider whether this is suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. In researching the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, which we looked at in Episode 2, I found a surprising link to an Australian doomsday cult, the Order of St. Charbel. So this episode, let's talk about that sect. A quick note here, that I've taken a number of things from William Cam's own writings about his childhood and the formation of his sect, but there are various factual conflicts in the information available – and I've also been unable to find certain entries that had been on his site previously. So it can be a little difficult to ascertain what is correct and what is perhaps not. I'll indicate when I'm using information from William's website, and you can be the judge. William Cam was born William John the Baptist Schutler, seven weeks premature, on May 16, 1950, in Cologne, Germany. His unwed mother, Gertrudis, or Gertrude Simons, was only 17 at the time, and his father, Giovanni, was a decommissioned soldier who returned to Italy not knowing of William's existence. William took the surname of his stepfather, Hans, who wed Gertrude before William's birth. He was so small when he was born that a handkerchief was his nappy, and he was a sickly baby and child. Two years later, his half-sister Karen was born, and two years after that, the family moved to South Australia in 1954. Australia was courting immigrants at the time, so it was very easy to relocate with assistance provided by the Australian government. They were settled in Renmark, where they lived and worked on a farm until they acquired their own land to build on. William attended Renmark Primary School, and according to his own website, quote, he proved to be a great sportsman, excelling at every sport he played and also achieving high marks in the academic field, a successful all-rounder. Also from William's biography on his website, it's stated that his family weren't particularly religious and his mother only taught him the basics attending church a couple of times a year but his neighbors would give him a lift to the local church every 2 to 3 weeks as quote, "even at such a young age he felt a great love for jesus in the blessed sacrament" overall william's childhood on the farm in south australia is described in idyllic terms apparently however there were some problems in the marriage of gertrude and hans including a drinking habit that had formed in william's stepfather and the family decided to return to Germany in 1960. While there, William references a terrible accident in which he fell off a rooftop and onto a sharp rock, and his mother found him unconscious, but he made a full recovery. After a year and a half back in Germany, the family felt that the country had changed from what they had remembered and had hoped to come back to, and so they decided to return to Australia. By this time, William was 12 years old again according to his website. In his mid-teens and back in Renmark, William had learned to play the guitar so well that he was invited to join Young Talent Time. Australians who grew up in the 70s and 80s will remember this as the Network 10 television show that launched the careers of Danny Minogue and Tina Arena. It didn't launch the career of William Cam, however, as he reports that he declined the invitation for fear of leaving his mother. Upon return to Australia... Hans's drinking problem hadn't subsided, and he again went back to Germany, with Gertrude filing for divorce. Not long after, she met another Hans, and selling the farm, she moved herself and her two children to Sunshine, Victoria, to be with him. This was Hans Cam, and William was to eventually take his surname as well. It's here that William Cam's biography on his website recounts a truly disturbing story, Apparently Hans Schutler had written to Gertrude and wanted to see William. There's no mention of Karen, William's sister and Hans's biological child. Gertrude at this stage hadn't shared with William that she had filed for divorce, and now she felt that it was time to do so. Gertrude didn't want William to see Hans, who had travelled back from Germany and was staying with friends in Adelaide, but William assured her that it would be fine and went to see the man he considered his father. Hans had two tickets back to Germany, one for himself and one for William, but William refused the offer. From here, I'll read a passage directly from the website. Quote, the friends took William aside and warned him that his dad was planning to kill him. They told William to go to the police. This took him aback and disturbed him. However, he recollected himself and went to the local church. There he made his confession and made his peace with God. He decided to let things ride and made ready to accompany his dad. The pair travelled to Renmark and they soon arrived at a friend's place. It was here that the friends also told William that Hans had a shotgun in the boot of the car and a shovel. They revealed that he was going to drive William to the graveyard and kill him. William listened and slowly understood that the dad he knew loved him, but would rather take his life than lose him. A very deep understanding from such a young man. He got in the car with Hans, and they arrived at the graveyard. William's heart was beating fast, and he made many offerings of this to God along the way. By now it was dark. The car came to a standstill, and William knew he had to act. Very gently, he told his dad that he knew of his intent to murder him. His father was taken aback that despite knowing this, his son would still cooperate with his request to come with him. William spoke to Hans about God, and that what he intended to do was wrong. He reassured him that although he would not come back to Germany, it was not necessary to kill him. He spoke to him of his love for him, a love that had not changed and would not in the future, that he would always have the love of his son. Hans broke down and poured his heart out to William. He told him that on learning that William would not return with him to Germany, he had intended to run the car into a semi-trailer, on the way to the graveyard, but couldn't go through with it. He was so sorry and begged William to forgive him. This was done without a second thought, and the pair returned to Adelaide. Relief. End quote. The last time William saw Hans Schutler was one day when he returned to the family home in sunshine and Hans had broken into the house in a drunken rage William came upon him in the kitchen brandishing a knife quote verbally threatening William and his mum for leaving him and when William calmed him down Hans went on to share the information that he was not his biological father eventually Hans fell asleep gertrude and karen returned home and the three packed up their belongings to start a life with Gertrude's new partner in Wollongong, a couple of hours south of Sydney. William never saw Hans Schutler again. I don't pretend to have any idea what William's childhood was like, but the picture he paints of a loving, happy upbringing, albeit with some alcohol issues in his stepfather, stands in pretty stark contrast to what one might have thought life with a parent capable of such violence would be like. Perhaps the drinking and the divorce had sent Hans into some kind of spiral, but there's no minimising that this sounds like a very dangerous man, and that those are not the actions of a well-adjusted parent with the best interests of his children at heart. In 1999, William self-published a book entitled The Little Pebble – the last pope, a man of contradiction, Petrus Romanus, sinner or saint. And in the first volume of this book, he speaks of a priest trying to seduce him at the age of 16. The priest was in his 40s, and William had stayed with him in his country parish. He managed to resist the priest's advances on two separate occasions by telling him that what he was doing was wrong. From William's book, As I write this now in 1999... I reflect on my experiences as a youth, especially in light of what has been reported in the newspapers and media about Catholic clergy of the Wollongong Diocese, who have, since 1970, been jailed for seducing and corrupting young boys. This great betrayal of trust casts a slur on so many of our religious, who have carried out their vocations to the best of their ability, with fidelity to their vows and dedication to their calling. In the early 70s, William became involved with the charismatic movement in Sydney. In this context, charismatic refers to the charisms or gifts that the Holy Spirit can bestow, such as faith healings, prophecies, and glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, though the last one is more common in Pentecostal and non-Catholic Christian charismatic circles. He stepped away from the charismatic movement based on their lack of focus on Our Lady who William says he felt a great devotion towards, and so started organising prayer groups focusing on her, as well as retreats in Minto and Malgoa on the outskirts of Sydney. William had done much reading about the Virgin Mary's apparitions at Fatima in Portugal, where in 1917 she had appeared before three children on the thirteenth day of a number of consecutive months eventually attracting tens of thousands to the location who wanted to witness the miracle of the children's final vision set for the 13th of October. This became known as the miracle of the sun, where the sun was said to have danced and spun in the sky, though scientists reported no unusual solar activity. William says he fell in love with a woman named Barbara when he was 27, in 1976. Again from his book, I was 27 years old, and although I had many girlfriends, and some of them had tried to seduce me, I had never given in to them. Now I found myself strongly attracted to Barbara, and in love with her, and it was with her that I surrendered my virginity. We became engaged and made plans to marry, but just before final plans were made, Barbara ended our engagement and returned to a previous lover. We had been going together for eight months, and these events devastated me. In my disappointment and distress, I stopped practising my faith, although I had been a daily communicant for 16 years. While I was involved with Barbara, I also began a modelling career, but it came to nothing as I made no real effort to proceed with it. For the following few years, until 1979, I went through a dark night of trial. My faith was truly tested. I stopped going to the prayer groups and meetings, and I lost contact with the apparition places although I did go to Mass from time to time. End quote. A couple of things about this. It's interesting for such a devout Catholic that William slept with Barbara before they were married, but I'm also quite surprised about the reference to a modelling career. William is and was a very short man with very bushy eyebrows, and I'm all for a more diverse appreciation of the human form, but I'd be surprised if his look was what modelling scouts in the late 70s were targeting. In 1979 and 1980, William made two trips to Bayside in Queens, New York. A woman named Veronica Lucan claimed to have visions of the Virgin Mary in the Bayside Hills area in the 70s, and the vigils she inspired were hugely disruptive to local residents in the area, who saw her as a fraud after money and fame. For the first trip, William had borrowed money from a friend to finance his travels, For the second trip, a passage from his book reads, "'The girl with whom I shared accommodation had fallen in love with me, but I was not attracted to her. "'She had received an inheritance and had asked how to invest it "'because she had decided to return to England for a while "'and wanted to know how she could send the money to England. "'I offered to place the money in my cheque account for the time being, "'and I would send it to her when she had settled in England.' I also asked if I might borrow a small amount to finance my trip to New York, and that I would replace it on my return. The girl was quite happy with this. Strangely, however, this girl must have misunderstood the arrangement, as she had the police waiting for William when he arrived at the airport. She was claiming that William had stolen her money, and so he says he wrote out a check to her for the full amount of $20,000. Upon his return from New York, William met a woman called Anne. She was 29 and divorced, and about to leave on a trip overseas. William told her that she should definitely head to Bayside, and wrote her a letter of proposal which he sent there to await her. On the second Bayside trip, there was more controversy when Canadian journalist Anne Killis accused William of sexually harassing female Bayside volunteers, including her daughters, the eldest of whom was 13, Veronica Lucan herself had heard complaints about William from female shrine workers as well, and William was asked to leave. He is said to have remarked, Well, I guess it's time Australia got its own seer. William denied any of this happened, though did say that Anne Killis's four daughters were very pretty girls. Back in Australia, things weren't so great, and having lost his job and been unemployed for an extended period of time, unable to find a new one, William Cam couldn't keep up with his rent and debts, and declared himself bankrupt. The Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican was held from October 1962 to December 1965, and it considered relations between the Catholic Church and the modern world several changes came about as a result, and still remain contentious with many traditionalists today. This was one factor considered in a 2015 article for the Journal of the Australian Catholic Historical Society that, quote, "...contributed to a trend among some conservative Catholics which led to the formation of what Patrick O'Farrell described as a significant movement toward re-emphasis of traditional doctrines and older pious practices." most notably those linked with the Virgin Mary, a trend particularly apparent amongst older Roman Catholics who yearned for the devotional and theological certainties of their younger days and in certain ethnic quarters where such devotional practices constituted the primary locus of their religious and cultural identity. It was amongst this group of self-described disaffected Catholics that Cam drew the majority of his followers, individuals who believed, as one former elderly female follower reflected, that the church was moving away from the tradition she held dear. End quote. The article also mentions the liberalisation of Australian society under the Whitlam and, to a lesser extent, Fraser governments of the 1970s, prompting some of the moral outrage of Williams' earlier messages. These included subjects like abortion, immoral and blasphemous films, homosexuality, and pornography as signs of societal decay. In 1982, William Cam would say that he received a message that Nara was to become a Lords of Australia, where, coincidentally, Bill and Joan Price, who had participated in William's prayer groups, had property in a place called Camberwara. Apparently, Australia was chosen due to its unique position in the world, as an oasis in the middle of nowhere. The Blessed Mother also gave William the name The Little Pebble which he says comes from a white stone mentioned in the Book of the Apocalypse. From William's book, quote, On February 22nd of that year, Anne and I became engaged. During this time, I was very active in the diocese. I found that many priests were breaking the laws of the church, and I became a thorn in their side as I would complain about them to the bishop. By 1983, Anne was pregnant with their first child. On the 7th of October, 1983, William says he received a message from Our Lady, and I quote, "'You, my son, have asked me many times whether Australia will ever have a Lord's or a Bayside. Well, my son, it will please you to know that the Eternal Father, in his infinite plan, had a place already chosen where heaven's graces would descend upon this great nation, where mankind would be cured and helped onto the road of salvation.' And this place, my son, was to be at Nowra. The time to reveal this plan has come only now. Had heaven revealed it to you earlier, it would have caused you much confusion and anxiety, for the mission placed upon your shoulders can only be given a step at a time. End quote. This is an example of where things can get a little confusing in William's writings, as only a few pages earlier in his book, He had already talked about receiving a message in 1982 about Nowra as Australia's lords. In 1984, Bishop William Murray of the Diocese of Wollongong presented several of William's messages to theologians in Sydney. Bishop Thomas Muldoon wrote to Bishop Murray, "'William Cam is not evil, nor does he deliberately set out to deceive people. I think he is subjectively sincere, but that he is deluded.' I think he is a megalomaniac, perhaps without knowing it, and that he is a hallucinationist. I am afraid many people have been hurt, and more will be more so if he is not stopped. End quote. In November 1984, Bishop Murray called William into his office, and told him that he did not believe the messages to be from heaven. The bishop made a public statement in December discouraging the diocese from believing in William's visions. Part of that statement reads, It has come to my knowledge that many of you have received and are still receiving written communications from a person describing himself as the Little Pebble. He claims that these communications contain messages given to him by the Blessed Virgin Mary and even by our Lord himself. As there has been a growing concern on the part of people who have received these messages, or who have been disturbed by the conduct of people receiving them, I submitted the messages to expert theological examination. The theological advice resulting from this examination is that no supernatural significance can be attached to the messages issued by the person calling himself the Little Pebble. Moreover, the messages fail completely when examined in the light of the criteria used by the Church for judging the authenticity of alleged supernatural phenomena. First of all, they are not consistent with the sacred scriptures and the Church's official interpretation of God's Word. Secondly, the messages have been a cause of division in families and communities. I have received numerous reports to this effect. This is a certain sign that the messages have not originated in heaven. Thirdly, rather than confirm people in their knowledge and love of God, the messages stir up fear by concentrating upon the sensational, the unusual, and upon fearsome predictions. Fourthly, many of those who have accepted the messages are now acting in an eccentric manner and are a cause of disturbance to other members of Christ's faithful. Fifthly, devotional practices called for in the messages have neither my approval nor that of the parish priest and clergy of the parish in which they take place. Sixthly, the messages have been found to contain a. contradictions, b. unfulfilled prophecies, and c. condemnations of practices regarding the reception of Holy Communion that have been permitted by the Church founded by Christ of which Mary is the mother. End quote. William claims that the many modern errors of the Church are exactly why the Virgin Mary speaks through him. He lists this statement, as well as many of the media articles at the time, under a chapter in his book entitled, The Persecution Begins. William's conservative approach was reflected in the dress code he encouraged in his followers, with religious attire and head coverings for the women. He also spoke of the end times, and looked to build catacombs in preparation. William's messages, as it turned out, were quite popular. In the wake of the Camberwara community in the Shoalhaven district of New South Wales would come further communities following his leadership in Victoria, Canada, Germany, France, New Zealand, and reportedly even Uganda. Some members at a Gilgandra community near Bathurst in New South Wales came to the attention of the media for engaging in military-style exercises, which had led to police concerns about a possible weapons cache. The total numbers probably peaked somewhere in the hundreds, but William would claim followers in the millions worldwide. The group originally came under the name of Marian Work of Atonement. When Anne Killis, the journalist who had assisted in driving William out of Bayside for harassment, heard about William's activities, she said, quote, See, he'd been at Bayside and watched the money rolling in in bags. He'd learned the ropes of how to operate a bogus seer operation. In
1: 1985,
0: William made a trip to Rome were against all odds he managed to gain a place at a general wednesday audience with the pope in spite of many people in the vatican laughing in his face at the idea in his recounting of his trip william says that he and his companions michael and georgette harb who had been receiving messages from saint charbel in sydney and one of his closest followers grant duffy encountered a number of demons on the visit but managed to deliver their messages to the pope and Our Lord told him that the Pope believed in them and that the trip was a success. In 1986, the Secretariat of State for the Holy See issued a statement through the papal pro nuncio, Archbishop Barbarito, denying that the Pope gave any approval of William's alleged visions, and directing him to submit himself to the jurisdiction of his bishop. Georgette Harb told William that St. Charbel had requested he visit his tomb in Lebanon, and not long after this, the Marian Workers of Atonement became known as the Order of St. Charbel. Following this trip, William went on his first of many travels around the world in 1986, financed by two of his followers. Not long after his return to Australia, William then headed off to Fatima, leaving Anne with their second child, a daughter who was just a few weeks old. In William Cam's book, there's a long alphabetically listed prophecy index, noting the date and whether the prophecy has been fulfilled or not. I'll read you the first ten. Accidents that are not accidents in the heavens, waters, land. 1st of October 1994. Yes. Adelaide, devastated by fire. 13th of June 1986. Yes. Yes. Adelaide, city will be annihilated, 18th of October, 1987. No. Adelaide, earth will tremble, 13th of June, 1986. No. Africa, great sufferings to come to nations of this continent, 3rd of September, 1993. Yes. Africa, many martyrs for defense of faith, Rwanda, 3rd of September, 1993. Yes. AIDS children, many will be cured. 14th of January 1990, no. Air disaster, bomb planted, 4th of August 1990, yes. Aircraft carrier of the US moving towards China's mainland, 13th of March 1996, no. America, devastated by atomic bombs, 13th of June 1986, no. It has to be said that William is quite clear in his book about a lot of the criticism he and his order have faced over the years. With that and his website, it takes some other aspects of the group's operation to meet this podcast's secrecy criteria for a cult. The Camberwara community was built on a former caravan park, and William would live in a multi-bedroom, multi-bathroom, air-conditioned house, while most of the other community members were living in mobile homes that were sweltering in summer and freezing in winter. William's visions would eventually come on the 13th of every month, and people would travel to Camberwara to pray and experience them first-hand. On the 13th of October, 1988, or 1986, depending on which of William Cam's own records you refer to, a great miracle was promised. In this miracle, the sun was said to spin, and a white cross appeared in the sky. According to a YouTube video shot on the day and uploaded by Malcolm Broussard, quote, The sun spewed out many different colours, many miracles occurred, many people were cured, and many converted to Christian faith. In the same YouTube series, William Cam speaks of having a mission to unite seers, and travelling around the world to do so. It is on one of these travels that he is said to have met Joseph Kibwateri and Credonia Mwurundi of the Ugandan Doomsday Sect, the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, which we talked about in Episode 2. In Bernard Atuher's book, The Uganda Cult Tragedy, A Private Investigation, He says that William Cam was mentioned as number 10 on that sect's list of reliable seers from overseas. Claire Ashman, who was a member of the Camberwara community for the best part of a decade, told me about the monthly gatherings.
1: Well, on the 13th of the month, and it still happens now, it's called Atonement Day, and on those days we would have pilgrims, that's what the people were called, the visitors, would come from near and far to uh, spend the day praying so they would get there early in the morning and start with mass and then um, a whole lot of prayers and then we would have lunch together um, in the big communal room underneath the chapel. And that's when Cam would make his appearance. There would be, there was a few men that were chosen as his security guards. And so he would come down smiling and whatever and have lunch and, you know, the pilgrims would fawn all over him and then he'd make an announcement and speak to them and they would record it and hang on to his whole, all of his words. And then um, after that, we would go up to the chapel and then we would start saying the rosary. And then we'd only be, you know, a couple of minutes in when suddenly Cam would be, you know, the Virgin Mary would appear and she'd give a message to Cam. It would be regarding like, for like. It, first of all, it'd be fawning over him, my darling little pebble of love, my rock and all this crap. Um, and then it would go on about, you know, forthcoming chastisements or punishments or whatever. And then... And then it would just move on to, you know, could be a multitude of things, really. According to Graham Weber in his book A Wolf Among the
0: Sheep, in 1991, William received a message from Our Lady about a woman named Bettina, who he met on a trip to Germany. Quote, Bettina is Cam's first mystical spouse, but not his lawful wife. Cam is not yet divorced from Anne, who bore four children before he returned to his homeland, Germany, in 1991 and brought back a souvenir, an attractive 17-year-old blonde. The Little Pebble announced that, with Mary's blessing, he and Bettina had been mystically married in Germany. Anne and her children subsequently left the Camberwara community, as did other disgruntled members who refused to tolerate adultery. But most good folks from the Order of St. Charbel accepted Cam's assurances that he was merely obeying God's mysterious command to marry Bettina further revelations that he should take more wives were also warmly welcomed at Camberwara, Anne did divorce William eventually, and a Sydney Morning Herald article by Andrew Stevenson in 2002 also makes reference to a mystical marriage in Poland to a teenage girl named Bezina three years before his mystical marriage to Bettina. Today there are over 750 messages from heaven listed on the Little Pebble website. Roman Catholic theologian Ronald L. Conti, Jr. listed some of them in January 2006 on his website Catholic Planet, examining why he believed William Cam's claims of private revelation to be false. One of his major reasons for coming to this conclusion is that a number of William's messages include self-exaltation, and others include support of a false bishop, being one of William's closest associates, Malcolm Broussard as well as many specific examples of false predictions. Many of the links that the theologian included on his website back to William Cam's are now met with 404 errors. When I tried to find some of the specific messages referred to, they also seemed to be missing from the Little Pebble archive. And going back further, the messages now appear to begin at number 426. One message he lists in his book in 1994 is as follows, quote, our Lady, my beloved rock of salvation, my little Peter, let not your heart be trouble, for I know your innermost desires and your loving and true heart. Child, I desire you to know a very great mystery. What you have asked will happen to you during the great warning. God will place you into a very deep sleep. It will be a type of ecstasy. During that time you will be transformed physically physically and will grow to six feet, three inches, the height of my divine Son, Jesus. All the hair that you have lost over the years will regrow, and your body will be supernaturalized. Upon your forehead will shine the sign of the cross, and on your hands two symbols of your authority will be placed. Your age will be that of thirty-three, and upon your chest will be my sign. The reason this will be done is so you will be recognized as the chief of the apostles, and have the authority from God to rule the church and be the leader of all nations as future King of Kings and the new Abraham for mankind. From that day forward you will never have any sickness or have any physical needs of sustenance, for the living God and his holy spouse, your mother, will dwell in you as a sign to the nations and mankind that God has chosen you to lead his children. Now, child, do you understand well the graces that have been given to you? I bless you, my loyal and faithful servant, most pleasing to the triune God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The community was growing, and in February 1997, one of the people who joined the Camberwara group, against her better judgment, was Claire Ashman. She's self-publishing a book about her experiences and she let me read the manuscript. It's an incredible story. As a bit of background, Claire grew up in an ultra-religious Catholic family.
1: I knew nothing about the world. Like, you know, like when I went out into social situations, I found it really, really difficult because, you know, I didn't know about politics, I didn't know about world events or if I did know, if I had heard about... World events, for instance, like there would be a certain take on it. Like, for instance, I have no idea why. But um, my father used to always say that Bob Hawke, um, one of our prime ministers, was a communist. I have no idea what gave him that basis. No idea whatsoever. So, I mean, I believe that he was a communist. Yet, I had no idea what communism meant.
0: So at the age of 15, when Tony, a family friend in his late 20s, seemed to take a liking to her she formed an attachment
1: i had no idea what love was i didn't my mother had never explained marriage you know like what marriage really is love emotions like there was none of that so i didn't know what i didn't know what to feel i didn't know what to think i had nothing to gauge it by we were not allowed to ever read romances and as i mentioned before no tv or media so i had no idea what to expect, what was even normal. I did not even know that a 27-year-old man taking an interest in a 15-year-old girl, it is not normal. Claire eventually moved out of her ultra-religious
0: family home almost right into a marriage with an older and again very religious man. When Tony discovered William Cam and the Order of St. Charbel, he was sold. Claire, however, had many reservations. Her first impressions of William Cam surprised her. The attractive man she'd heard all about from Victorian community
1: members was not what she'd been expecting at all. When I did finally meet him at the Seymour community um, when I, in late 95, in my head I'm going, oh my God, wh- what are they going on about? Like, he was short, he was fat, he was hairy. It was just not anyone that... I would be attracted to at all and I could not, I could not fathom it. On top of that, there were other things that didn't sit right with her about the order. I couldn't, I couldn't um, articulate that because I didn't know how to and I didn't have the knowledge about the cult and obviously I didn't even know the word cult at the time. It was only much later that I did but I just felt that something was very off. Her
0: concerns weren't enough to dissuade her husband, however.
1: Well, the thing was that we were always taught to give over our will to God's. So it wasn't about what we thought and what we wanted to do. It was about doing what the right thing, the correct thing to do in regards to the church and the church's laws. So obviously I had been brought up to believe that um, men you know like husbands are the head of the house that's how it works that they are totally in charge and so I thought that I was being a very obedient submissive wife in doing as I was told because we were always also told that if you're obedient and submissive to your husband well then um, it will like you'll have a long happy marriage So that's what I thought I was doing the right thing. But when Tony wanted to move to the doomsday cult, I, like, I had this really bad feeling inside of me and I didn't want to go. And I did voice this to him, you know. I voiced to him that I didn't feel good about it. Like I, and he just wouldn't listen to me. He basically said if you're, you're just basing your, your decision on emotion, women are known to be emotional. So unless you can actually base um, what you're thinking and feeling on Catholic religion and, like, theology, um, the teachings of the Catholic Church, unless you can base it on that, well, then don't even talk to me. I asked what it was that Tony saw in the group that she didn't. He was a uh, first-generation Slovenian and for some reason he had this – he liked – he was stuck in the past, so to speak, and he loved this idea of being – like living in a community like one of the small villages in Slovenia where they have their church, they have their little village, everybody farms, everybody celebrates the feast days together, everybody helps each other out. You know, it, it's just very, very small, you know, small-town mentality and everybody knows everybody else's business and, you know, you marry the next-door neighbour or daughter or whatever, <clears throat> that sort of thing. Um, so he he had this idealistic view that, you know, life life was a lot happier when it was just simple and easy and everybody practised religion together. Those were his reasons. That, well, that was one reason. The other reason was that he believed in end-of-world theories. And the reasons that other members of the community had joined? They had believed what William Cam had told them, as in all their previous life experiences, had led them to this point. So you know how we all go through a questioning period or questioning periods in our lives, you know, like in those late teenage years, you know, you start questioning your beliefs and, you know, your parents' beliefs or, you know, you you question a lot of different things. I think with a lot of other people there, they had gone through all these questioning periods in their life but they'd always looked outward for the answer rather than inward And so when they came to, you know, when they came across William Cam, they found that he had the answers for everything. I mentioned to Claire that I'd
0: watched a number of videos of William Cam online and that he didn't seem to fit the usual mould of a charismatic leader. I don't
1: think that he comes across as charismatic in videos and stuff as he does in like in real life, like if he would be interviewing you or whatever, he had this art of telling everybody what they particularly wanted to hear. So he could talk to you, Sarah, and find out, you know, your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, what you liked, what you disliked, and tailor his whole conversation to you and and just butter you up and tell you what you wanted to hear. And then I could go in there with a totally different, you know, demeanour and he would just match that. William had some specific answers that appealed directly to
0: Claire's then-husband, who had had to leave the seminary years earlier due to ill health.
1: Because at that time that was seen as a direct sign from God that he wasn't suitable for, for priestly life. Now, Cam was just like, oh, you know... The Virgin Mary, you know, she planned this all along. She wanted you to spend that time in there so that you could learn what you could learn and then you could later on bring it here to the community and then build on that and then you'll be one of the first married priests, you know. So this is what he did.
0: In terms of the logistics of moving into the community, I asked Claire what happened to people's money when they joined the order.
1: You were supposed to give it over, like whatever savings you had, it's all in the rule and constitution. So basically, because we were forced to join the order and take um, vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, we weren't, you know, we were supposed to only live on the poverty line I suppose or just above the poverty line because of course poverty you know being poor is spiritual and you gain a higher place in heaven so we needed to have everybody living on the same level and then of course anybody who had any savings or any extras that needed to be pooled for the good of everybody so basically he was trying to have everybody live on the same level just above poverty line so we could all be equal yet he had money to do whatever And in relation to the
0: messages from the Virgin Mary, I wondered what Claire had felt about William's supposed visions at the time. She gave me a detailed and considered response, which I think goes a long way to describing the many conflicting feelings that people often have in these situations.
1: What I remember of the messages is that I didn't want to believe them, but once again, when you're fed that all the time it becomes, to a certain point, ingrained. So I wasn't fully immersed in them like a lot of other people were because a lot of them did, contain, you know, like they contained direct direction on your life, which involved giving up your free will. Now, I didn't want to I wanted to be able to live my life the way I wanted so while I would be there kneeling there listening to all this there was still a lot of questions in my mind thinking you know is this for real but then I felt bad because I was questioning the Virgin Mary but then I would have all these questions going on simultaneously in my mind it's so difficult to describe it because an outsider looking at me would see me as being a very, you know, a very good Catholic girl. I'm kneeling there. I've got my children. I've got my head covered, My, you know, my head down, my eyes closed. I'm looking very pious and all the rest of it. So I look like I'm believing it. But inside of my head there's so many, there's thousands of thoughts going through my head simultaneously about do I believe it? What if I don't? But, you know, could it really happen? And then in my time since I've left the cult, I've discovered, and also in talking to many other cult survivors as well, is that it's there's just this seesaw of emotion. There's a seesaw of, you know, your common sense slash intuition versus what you're being, you know, brainwashed with every day. And it's really hard and this is why it's so hard for people to leave either abusive relationships or abusive cults because of this whole seesawing of emotion and reason because on the one hand you think I just can't take it anymore and I don't really believe that this is true in my core. However, you know, what if it is true? What if I leave and then these bad things do happen to me? Then what?
0: Claire refers to the Order of St. Charbel as a doomsday cult, as the group was led by William
1: Cam to believe in a coming apocalypse. There was going to be a new holy era. So you know how in the book of Revelation slash apocalypse it says that a new heaven will descend to earth, that phrase. So that was going to be the new holy era, which we, as the special ones, were going to inhabit and create you know, a new new races, obviously, twelve new 12 tribes of Jacob, basically.
0: In her book, Claire describes her then-husband spending a lot of time making blessed grapes, which I found a fascinating concept and an interesting illustration of one of the ways that group members were kept busy. Families were storing up lots of canned foods and other goods for the impending apocalypse, but there were going to be other tricks to survival
1: during this difficult time too. I'm not sure whether it was one or whether it was a bunch of grapes that were supposedly blessed by the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then those particular blessed grapes had been put into these tiny little containers and covered with um, brandy, I think, to preserve them. And then when you asked for it, you were given it, and then you could create your own blessed grapes. So, Tony went out and bought all these um, red grapes. You know, like he looked them over and made sure they were really lovely. So then he washed them, and then he cut each one off with a quarter of inch, quarter of an inch stem on each one, and then he sat there, and with the blessed grape in the right hand and the you know his grape in the left hand. He would sign the cross onto each of the new grapes going in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and put them into a jar and fill that jar with brandy so that then they would be preserved. And apparently we were told that in the times when there would be no food, we only needed to have one of those grapes and that would sustain us for the whole day
0: but there were also other, more sinister ways that members were being asked to spend their time. In joining the Camberwara community... Claire and her husband had begun to hear
1: a few rumours about a thing called the Royal House of David. There was secrecy, but see, the thing was, when we got there, um, we had heard rumours that there were people who had left because of this Royal House of David. So... And then when we asked, well, I didn't ask the questions, but Tony did. When he asked different questions, he got wound down very quickly and people were like, oh, no, you know, they, they lost their mission, you know, they didn't understand and they just left or they left in the middle of the night or something like that. There was big secrecy surrounding it and we never got to the bottom of it until many years later.
0: Volume 1 of William's book finishes before detailing the Royal House of David and Volume 2 is supposed to contain a chapter about it but the links to read volumes 2 and 3 from the Little Pebble website aren't working, so the information that I have about this subject comes from a few other sources, including newspaper articles and journalist Graham Webber's 2008 book about William Cam entitled A Wolf Among the Sheep. The Royal House of David consisted of William Cam, then 12 queens and 72 princesses, who would be his mystical brides. The queens were young virgins who would remain wedded to William alone while the princesses could be married to other men in the order, but would be able to have mystical babies with William. Apparently the babies would be conceived through a holy hug or embrace, and this new race would take the world forward after the apocalypse. William by then was married to his second wife Bettina, who was kept in the dark about some of the details.
1: When you walk into the chapel, immediately to the right, there was this bishop's chair that was there and then we didn't know who it was for, obviously, and it was for him and we would notice that um, young girls would come in and they would kiss him on the lips and then all group around him and there would be various ones and then some of them would be jostling for attention and blah, blah, blah. And we didn't understand it when we first got there, and Tony actually said to Cam, um, it's not really a good look to have young girls kissing you on the lips when they're coming into the chapel and going out. And um, he just laughed it off, and he's just like, oh, no, it's a German custom. Um, but then obviously later on we discovered that, you know, they were they were the queens that were all jostling for superiority because, you know, there was, some, there was a lot of backstabbing, you know, between them all and everything, and it was just... It was awful. It's just not nice. And, you know, and see, the thing was that those girls would only, they would only kiss him on the lips when Bettina wasn't there. And, you know, he, he, you know, made them promise to keep it all secret from her. When some
0: of the parents of the girls who were chosen as queens and princesses in William's royal house of David
1: became aware of their daughter's selection, they felt honoured when he envisioned or took on this royal house of David rubbish, they, like the mothers, were just enamoured with that. They were like, oh, my God, my daughter is a queen. She's chosen as a queen of this new race, you know, in the new holy era, and, oh, she's a princess, oh, you know, and they would literally write letters, and I say that in inverted commas, to the Virgin Mary, again in commas, who was Cam, um you know asking what was their spiritual name how many children were they going to have what were some of the names of those children according to claire eventually even the 84 queens and princesses proved too few later on like a few years later i got my hands on a secret document that actually had the royal house of david tree so to speak It was in like a triangle, so, you know, obviously him at the head and then it had um, the queens, the princesses, but then later on he had it as queens, minor queens, princesses and baronesses, so he just added and then my name was on there. Claire on a few occasions previously had caught William Cam looking at her and she got a really creepy vibe from it. I felt like I can articulate it now, but I couldn't articulate it then. Is that I felt like he was undressing me with his eyes? Then Claire herself
0: was chosen as a princess one atonement day.
1: When I was chosen as a princess, and when I say chosen, I mean A, I didn't know anything about it for a start, and it was I was chosen without my knowledge and without my permission, and I didn't want it. I was horrified. I was horrified. I was upset. I spent a week in hiding in my house just crying because I didn't understand it. I didn't want to be that even though I had no understanding of what it meant because I'm very much a down-to-earth practical girl. There's no swanning around in castles with um, tiaras and big ball gowns for me. I didn't like my life to be out in the open, so to speak, because I, one thing I did notice with, with the cult was that – Everybody was speaking about um, their mission and who they were and their, you know, special spiritual name or whatever. So that was all out there. It was a big thing, you know, and I didn't like it and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be that and I didn't want to be spoken about. You know, I didn't want to be the talk of the talk of the town, so to speak. Um, but it was taken out of my hands because. Um, you know, not long after, you know, the the message, you know, there was a couple of young girls that came running over and, I mean, had already been told that they were chosen as queens and they came running over and they're like, oh, my God, you've been chosen as a princess. It's a great honour. Oh, my God, do you know your name? Do you know your mission? And I'm like, no, 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 and I don't want to know. I'm, I'm happy the way I am. Claire eventually told the girls her name was Xena as she'd been
0: enjoying Xena Warrior Princess at the time but they didn't take the bait.
1: And um, they went and they went all went rushing off to the office and asked William Cam himself. And if you ask me now what my name and mission was, I have no idea because I cannot remember for the life of me, but, um, yeah, I was chosen as a princess.
0: Claire felt pretty uncomfortable about the whole idea from the beginning, especially when it came to the young queens. Although she never questioned anything herself, her then-husband did ask a few questions of William.
1: He was saying that our lady said that 16 was the legal age, so therefore it was okay, but I wasn't convinced. Like, I mean, even though I didn't know what the legal age was, it was gross because it was gross, it was disgusting, they were young girls, and he was, like, in his late 40s. It was in January of 2000 that Claire found out what was really
0: happening and that William Cam was not impregnating these young women via a holy embrace.
1: From that point... I had real problems like I I was just angry and I said to Tony I said I want to leave I this is you know I don't want to be here I don't want to be a part of this and Tony was like no 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 he's got special permission from the Virgin Mary to do this and and i just like well you know even though I didn't know the law I just felt disgusted totally disgusted by it like no this is not it's not acceptable It's not right. Like, how can a married, like, he was already divorced and had four children with his first wife, and here he is married to Bettina and got young kids and he's sleeping with young girls, taking away their whole future.
0: However, it would still be years before the law caught up with William Cam. In 2000, William was investigated by two theologians and two canon lawyers. Their conclusion was that he spread false teachings and that there was nothing supernatural about the alleged visions. The order of St. Charble was in clear contradiction to the teachings, discipline, and authority of the Catholic Church. William threatened to sue the Wollongong diocese off the back of these findings. In 2002, the Wollongong bishop Peter Ingham issued an order that the Charbelites "cease all activities that are contrary to the teachings, authority and discipline of the Catholic Church" in a decree on June 16th. The Catholic Church outlawed the order and Rome endorsed their investigation's findings. <music> Graham Webber's book about William Cam and the Order of St. Charbel came out in 2008. In researching his book, Graham read many letters between William and his followers, including some purportedly from the Virgin Mary via William. He recounts some correspondence between William and one of his chosen mystic wives, who is given the pseudonym Kylie. On the 5th of July 1993, a just turned 15 Kylie wrote to the then 43-year-old William, accepting the role of queen that had been designated by the Virgin Mary. William wrote back on the same day as reprinted in Graham Weber's book, You will receive 17 children from my seed, and your life will be one of holiness and happiness beyond your understanding. I know, Kylie, that it is difficult to understand, and more so that I will be married to more than one wife." However, it is God's holy will, and I will do everything in my power to do his holy will, as all of what I am revealing to you has been revealed to countless mystics around the world. This is the only way that is certain to know that it is from God. He also said, quote, I have always been a one-woman man, and protecting the marriage state. Of course it is the dream of men to have many wives, but, funny thing is, I have never desired this. Yet, the very thing I was so protective of, God asks me to undo, which I do with love and faithfulness." The Blessed Virgin also wrote back via William eight days later, My beloved daughter Kylie, I am very pleased that you have accepted the graces from God. You will be very happy in your life with William, our chosen son, because your love for him is very deep, as it was given to you from my divine son, Jesus. I know, dearest child, you're excited and anxious to deepen your relationship with your husband William. However, remain at peace and let each day take care of itself in the divine plan of God. Remember well that marital love will nurture with time, and in your case all things must be done slowly and discreetly as Bettina must not become aware of the situation till I myself speak to her. It continues, quote, be patient child for all must take its rightful time and place you have permission for an intimate union with your husband at any time but remember be discreet till the time of revelation i bless you child End quote. while william was maintaining to the wider community well at least those who were aware of the royal house of david that any procreation would happen via a holy embrace his letters to kylie tell a different story on the 14th of July, he wrote, quote, You do not need to worry, my love, that I am going to make you pregnant early. No, I have no intentions of making you pregnant for some time yet. You probably do not know that you can have sex without making someone pregnant. Well, my little one, there are ways of making love which is safe, with using contraception or any other means. When I am alone with you, I will explain it all, End quote. Other excerpts from William's letters to Kylie include such things as, I think you are sexy too, your eyes and lips and mouth, that succulent mouth, with succulent misspelled and two exclamation marks. Did you know that you are very sexy? I am licking my lips now. And, You have got a great pair of legs. I was watching them as I was writing to you today. And after a sleepover with some other girls at William and Bettina's place... I hope you will be staying overnight often, for it gives me a chance to get to know you and eye you off, especially to see that sexy body of yours. A short reminder here that William was 43, and Kylie had recently turned 15 at this point in time. She had also received no sex education due to her strict Catholic upbringing, so had little understanding of the sex that William referred to in his letters. There was a more explicit one on the 5th of October, and some further details following, so skip ahead 30 seconds if you'd prefer to miss this bit, but I'm including it because I think it says quite a lot about William Cam's levels of deception. Again from Graham Weber's book, from William Cam's letters, quote, "'When we make love for the first time, "'it will be a little hard because it will be new for you, "'but you do not have to be afraid, "'for I will be very gentle with you. "'As you are a virgin, we will make love slowly "'until your vagina gets used to my body penetration.'" End quote. And as a side note, vagina was misspelled in this letter. A letter on the 18th of November warned Kylie to be careful about talking to anyone as, quote, It is very dangerous now as the press is sniffing around. End quote. While Kylie managed to listen to her mounting doubts and eventually left the community and her queenly duties, first in 1994 and then again in 1997, others weren't able to. She told her story later as a 27 year old in the New South Wales District Court, where she revealed that William had masturbated her in a car, fondled her breasts, and put his tongue in her mouth, amongst other assaults over a five month period. A New South Wales District Court jury convicted William Cam on four charges of aggravated indecent assault and one charge of aggravated sexual intercourse against a girl of 15, related to incidents that dated back to 1993. Judge John Williams said that Williams' actions were, quote, an inexcusable and gross breach of trust. In 2005, William was sentenced to five years in jail for sex crimes against a minor. He appealed the sentence as excessive in 2007, but his appeal was denied. Later that same year, on the 24th of August, his parole period was more than doubled when he was sentenced for five further counts of sexual intercourse and one count of committing an act of indecency, this time against a 14-year-old girl. She had managed to leave the community in 2002, and in her victim impact statement said, quote, William Cam has taken my innocence, my childhood, my independence, and my virginity. I believe he is a danger to young girls and their families. I don't wish the pain I went through upon anybody in this world. Judge Berman in this case said, "...it's remarkable that although many believed him to be God, and that the writings came directly from the Virgin Mary, nobody thought to ask why he was incapable of spelling simple words correctly." William's second appeal on the first case was again denied by the High Court in June 2008, and with the new charges he wouldn't be eligible for parole until April 2013. When that date came around, his parole was denied. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, he is believed to have fathered more than 20 children and duped dozens of females, telling them that they were among 12 queens and 72 princesses chosen to repopulate the earth after Judgment Day. While a number of people did leave the Order of St Charbel when William
1: went to jail, Claire says a fair few still remain. For those that are left, it's a mix of believers slash ones that can't leave because they just don't have the money.
0: Claire described how she and her then-husband signed a legal document with the Order that said they'd get back the money that they invested in the community if they ever wanted to leave,
1: yet they've seen none of it. She also speaks about the rule and constitution of the Order. The rule and constitution of Saint Chabelle that he had written out. And in a few places in that rule and constitution, it specifically states that A, you are free to leave any time you want, and B, when you do leave, the order has to pay back all money that was given that you spent in trying to set yourself up, like anything like that. The order has to give it back to the person or the family that are leaving if they choose to leave, so it helps them set themselves back up in the world because they don't want them to be, like, on the back foot. What a total... Look, I have to use the word bullshit because that's what it is.
0: Claire says of all the people she knew who left, there was one person who managed to recover their money and only by taking it to court. She has asked for her and her then-husband's $55,000 investment back numerous times, but to no avail. Although Claire herself had been wanting to leave the community since 2000, it took her six more years to finally get out. When I think about the difficulties she faced in doing so, I find it incredible what she managed to
1: achieve. I guess subconsciously I was always on the lookout to be able to move. I didn't know how that was going to happen because I had no access to funds, like I had no money, I didn't know how to apply for rentals, nothing, zero. So I had no idea, yet I looked for opportunities. Around this same
0: period, Claire's then-husband Tony was looking at books on his computer.
1: I was looking over his shoulder one day and I saw this book, I knew nothing about it. I've still got it here and I've only read it once because it absolutely scared the living daylights out of me. The book was The Beautiful Side of Evil by Johanna Michelson. I don't even know why I just said I would like that book and he just bought it. i That was it. I sat down and I read it and my eyeballs nearly popped out of my head and I was scared shitless because it described a sacrificial cult in Mexico or somewhere like that. Now... The doomsday, you know, William Cam's cult wasn't sacrificial in that way or anything, but I could see the similarities between what I was living in and that book. And I had never heard the term cult before, and that introduced me to the term cult. So, in my head, like I was living in a cult now, and that was it. I did not want to be a part of it. I did not know how I was going to get out of it, but I didn't want to be a part of it. At that point, William Cam had started ordaining
0: married men as bishops and priests which was against the rules of the Catholic Church. With these things combined, Claire decided to stop going to Mass at the order, and she went to the local church instead. Having been told that she would be completely unwelcome at the local parish and would be shunned, she was surprised to find how welcoming the
1: priest and the congregation were there. Remember, I had all young children. I went against my husband's wishes and I went. The parishioners were actually friendly. They actually said nice things to me. The priest was the priest was welcoming. He introduced himself. He knew exactly where I was from because of the way I was dressed and I covered my head. He didn't shun me at all.
0: This was a starting point for Claire. There's a long process that she covers in more depth in her book, but from here she made friends outside the order and she started looking at rentals in the paper. The way she described this process of really starting to find independence is such
1: an eye-opener as to the things I've always taken for granted as just part of growing up. I went and made my own bank account. I had no idea how to do it. I was shaking in my boots like you wouldn't believe, but I did it. I mean, I had to ask for help in filling out forms and what I needed to take, etc. but I did it. And then I went to Centrelink, uh, the welfare office, and then I got, I changed the bank details so that the Centrelink payments would go into that bank account. She also started getting rid of bags of secondhand
0: clothes, outdated tinned food, 44-gallon drums of grains and more from the house. One day when Tony was away, with the Mission Brown religious habits she refused to wear and that made her anxious every time she saw them hanging in the closet.
1: I bundled them up one day, I took them out into the chicken yard, I poured some petrol on it and set a match to it. And I tell you what, that was the best feeling in the world and I felt like I had a little bit of control in my life. Then in August of 2006... The sheriff showed up at my door with um, eviction papers and I had no idea what an eviction was I had no idea what the papers said I just said to him please just tell me what you want me to do and he just said these are mortgage repossession papers and you need to be out in 12 days and I said thank god my kids and I have been wanting to move from here for years just tell me what to do help me and he just said well look you need to go and find a house to rent and if you can't find a house in rent well you need to ring up the housing commission and they will help you. You know, I look back now at everything I did and the boundaries that I pushed and I think, God, I had some gall. But, I mean, my kids, I was their security and their stability and I could not let my kids down. Come hell or high water, I was going to find a house for them. I was going to look after them because they were my number one.
0: Continuing his writings during his jail term, William wrote about cults himself in an entry on the Little Pebble website on the 12th of September 2013. Quote, there were many cults and sects from the very beginning. Even Christianity was regarded as a cult. In the 21st century, you have cult followings of movie stars, singers, sportsmen and women. But in the last 50 years, the media has branded God's chosen souls as cult leaders, Making the world believe they are the same as the most notorious cult leaders who, in many cases, led their believers to mass suicide. Supreme Truth Japan, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Morrison Family and Son of Sam, the People's Temple, Waco, the Solar Temple and Heaven's Gate. These leaders are extreme false prophets. End quote. Towards the end of his time in prison, a prisoner social networking site was launched and received some media attention in Australia. As the South Coast Register reported in July 2014, quote, In his writings, Cam doesn't show a skerrick of repentance, remorse or guilt for his past actions, End quote. William set up a profile that detailed his continued efforts to clear his name, as well as his time spent on ceramics, painting and cooking meals for lactose and gluten intolerant inmates. William Cam was released from jail in November 2014 at the age of 64, after serving nine years of his sentence, but remains under strict conditions until at least 2021. He can't have contact with any girls under the age of 17, he can't go back to the Nara area, he is electronically monitored, his communication devices are restricted, and he has a 10pm to 6am curfew. He appealed these conditions to the Supreme Court in May last year, and in August his appeal was denied. The court heard that he had been assessed as suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, as well as something called paraphilic disorder. Paraphilia itself is not a diagnosis, but pertains to an interest in atypical sexual practices, whereas a paraphilic disorder is diagnosed when that interest involves harm to oneself or others often related to non-consenting individuals. According to the Illawarra Mercury, quote, a September 2015 psychological risk assessment report found there is a high likelihood of further serious sexual offending should the appellant be released into the community without supervision. Quote. Justice Ian Harrison said, quote, Mr. Cam's particular sexual predispositions appear to be almost intractable. And that there are, quote, real concerns Mr. Cam will further reintegrate with members of his order and position himself in a rural area, away from scrutiny and in a manner that will provide ready access to underage followers, end quote. News reports after his release in 2016 also mentioned a political party he was starting up, which has a WordPress site at republicreformjusticeparty.org and lists an interesting array of aims and policies in a post entitled To the Australian Public, including some that I agree with, like No person should be left to die due to the cost of medicine, Free education on all levels for Australians, and Refugees should be allowed to reach Australia and given a visa with shelter and care until checks have been made. But it's hard to see how these could be accomplished alongside increasing medical research, doubling the police force and fire brigade, and tripling the size of the military, when another of the aims and policies is a new and simplified tax system, those in the higher income bracket from medium to high taxed at 10%, and the lower income bracket taxed at 5%. The list is signed off by William Costellia, and also includes compulsory military service for students, criminalising abortion, and a rather notable point number 21, quote, Statute of limitations for crime should be limited to five years, no exceptions. William Cam continues to blog via littlepebble.org under the name William Costellia. He's written a number of times to the American president with messages from Jesus, and in a video address to Donald Trump for the 4th of July 2017, he offers some advice. Here you can hear his voice directly from the recording.
1: I have an idea for you concerning the wall between you or your country and Mexico, which will cost you much less than what you have already planned. Use electronic laser towers, beams that make up the wall with stations so many kilometres apart and drones to monitor
0: the (laughs) wall. In August last year, William Costellier put out a press release addressing the media. I'll now quote a few selected segments. Lies, innuendo, suspicion and outright untruths have been dished out to a gullible Australian public. It is for this reason I call on the Australian parliamentarians to change the law on media coverage and to criminalise false and untruthful reporting. Once this is done, reporting will be something to look up to and trust, rather than accepting trash. You have been constantly claiming we are a cult, and I am its leader. The Order of St. Charbel and its associated prayer groups were supported by cardinals and bishops from various countries. All of this can be verified by many documents made available to the public since the early 90s, if you had been bothered to do your research. Why would a jury choose guilty? Very easily, with some 400 media articles, which included nearly daily TV coverage and several current affairs programs before, during and after the trial, the so-called victim lied on oath, admitting it some 15 times. She and her druggie co both lied on oath and admitted that they set me up, using the police and the media to achieve their end, and this was to gain money. They were issued with a certificate S-128 to protect them from prosecution. They also gave me a letter of threat and demand for money. Yet, did the media ever bring that to the public? No. Be assured I will expose the false media and the authorities who use their power and influence to dupe the public. Look at my website. There you will find the truth. William's website entry on the 7th of January 2018 notes signs that the Great Tribulation has begun, and relays messages from the Eternal Father as follows. The dark clouds hang low over Rome, my sweet children, and soon the earth will quake and fire shall gutter parts of the holy city and holy artefacts will be destroyed. The holy temple shall be wrenched from top to bottom as a reminder of how the old temple was not spared when they judged my divine Son, Jesus. The evil sects and the faction of Islam, not aligned with the true teaching of Abraham and Moses, will ransack all that was holy and bring terrorism into the eternal city, bringing fire and killing many. The great volcanoes of Italy will burst and bring great sorrow to this land, that once was the pride of Christendom. Turkey will invade once again the shores of the Christian world, to bring Islamic fanatical teachings, to draw out the word of my divine son, Jesus. The volcanoes of Iceland and Indonesia will level the lands with many casualties. The island of Bali will sink because sin abides gravely in this land made only for pleasure. A great island city will feel the heat from above and explode. England will suffer with more terrorism. It would seem war has broken out. Marseille and Paris will again be targeted, because the French government and its people have allowed false gods to rule it and replace Christ. You see, my children, your Eternal Father, who created you out of love and offered you a perfect kingdom with him, is very angry, and you have chosen rather to accept the invitation to death and destruction, simply because the enticement of the flesh and power and mammon offered to you by Satan is more pleasing to you. But I, as your father, love you and must send down these terrible chastisements to bring you to your senses. Do you need the fires from heaven to finally turn your hearts around? It seems that not a lot has changed in the world of William Cam. Will his followers continue to believe him as each new prophecy fails to come to fruition? Only time will tell.
1: Claire Ashman says it's unfortunately not that simple. And this is another reason why I speak out, because generally people don't understand the manipulation and the brainwashing that goes with it. Because when you're in these kinds of groups, everything, all the information that comes to you, even if you have your own television and your own radio, and you hear things on the TV, you've had so much brainwashing, you've had so much manipulation, that then what has been told to you by the cult leader always kicks in. Because they always say to you that the media is run by the devil or it's run, you know, it's run by rich people like Murdoch or um, James Packer, for instance. And, you know, all they're in it for is the money and they also want to try and control us. So, and then, of course, it then rolls on to they are tools of the devil. So... You know, they're unconscious tools of the devil, the, those people. So it all goes back to evil. So when you have this kind of information coming to you, your automatic reaction is to just believe what you've always been told or you've always been brainwashed to believe. So people would just would just keep on believing it because they were also told that it was only the faithful that would be promised these special roles.
0: She also says it's a mistake for the public to believe that once someone like William Cam is sentenced
1: to jail, their following ceases to exist. Cam's group is still going. The Nowra group is still going. There is a, another group, uh, I think it might only be a married couple, but it's still there in South Australia. There are two in Victoria. There is the Happy Hens Farm near Meredith and there is the Tayak group near Broadford at least two in Canada, one in the US, and there was one in Dublin in Ireland. So it's still going. As author Graham Webber told ABC Radio Illawarra,
0: quote, I think a lot of people can relate to being in a, say, a bad relationship or a bad workplace. And you look back and think, man, why didn't I just get out of there earlier? I should have seen it written all over the place. But we don't. <music> Claire and her husband have been watching the Netflix show Mindhunter, and she mentioned that she'd love to see cult leaders profiled in a similar way to how serial killers were during the period the show depicts, though it's hard to imagine this happening without a big change in society's perception and treatment of these people and whether they are understood
1: to be criminals or not dig into their mind find out why they do this why how much have they understood how much have they planned how much have they just run by the seat of their pants how much have they realized how much power they have on people and they can just manipulate them how much arrogance do they have how much narcissist do they have there's there's endless questions here you know like are they mentally ill are they schizophrenic do they believe their own hallucinations do they believe their own messages how why there's there's thousands of questions that can be
0: asked. Claire also has an incredible message in her book that I asked her more about, and I think it says a lot about her character that she's been able to come out of her experiences with this passion. So I'm going to end today's episode with these words from her.
1: Ultimately, I always wanted a better life for my for myself and my kids because I, like deep down, regardless of all the mental, emotional, financial, spiritual abuse that I'd gone through, I still had this tiny little ember of, you know what, I deserve, my kids and I deserve better than this. And even though I had no, I had the lack of education and the lack of life experience, I just figured that life outside in the world even though I had no idea what it would look like, it had to be better than living in here. And then when I got to the outside... You know, I have five daughters and I didn't want my daughters to ever have to live through what I lived through. I wanted them to be to be wild, to be happy, to be free, um, to be themselves and never to be submissive and, you know, for for men to, you know, for them to be strong enough to stand up for themselves in whatever situation and be whatever they wanted to be. And I thought if I can make the world a better place for them, And then ultimately that would be ripple effects out into the world for other women because it's so bloody hard to fight against all of that to make a better world and to, you know, for women and girls. And for me I am passionate about that. That is the biggest thing. I want to be able to educate young girls and women to see the signs of, abuse no matter how mild and i'm not just talking about sexual abuse i'm talking about social financial emotional mental physical you know spiritual because people don't realize that there's all these other forms of abuse and then that and it's always starts off small and they don't recognize the signs you know and it upsets me. I mean, I see, I can see it. I see it in, in relationships and in marriages. And I just think, you know, I think to myself, why are you putting up with that? You know, like the guy might say something that's being passed off as a joke. It's actually not a joke, you know, like you shouldn't be putting up with that. And so for me, my legacy is to make the world a better place for all women. And so they can be free, wild and free and fulfill their dreams and be themselves and that that in turn will be passed on to their children. And, you know, over time, the world will become a much better place for females because that's that is my dream, my absolute dream.
0: currently working on a program to help women recognize the signs of abuse and leave damaging relationships and groups, and her book, Lessons from a Cult Survivor, is available for pre-order now. You'll be able to find all of the details on her site, claireashman.com, that's claireashma dot com, and also linked on the episode webpage at ltaspod.com. A big thanks to Claire for her time and openness in speaking to me for this episode. If you have an experience that you'd like to share on Let's Talk About Sects, I'd love to hear from you at ltaspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash ltaspod or drop us a like on Facebook or a follow on Twitter. You can also vote for Let's Talk About Sects in the Australian Podcasting Awards in the popular vote category up until April 1st. We'd love your vote. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you can join me again next month.